All right, thank you, Ken. Thank you guys for leading us in worship. And that is certainly our prayer that uh, during the course of this service, as you have worshiped, as you are challenged by the Word of God, as we pray along together, uh, we do pray that God's Spirit would speak to our heart, calling some to become followers of Christ. And whether you're here in person or online, we hope that you will reach out to us. You can, again, text FL Respond to uh, that number uh, that is provided for you. You can call the church office. We would just love Love to be able to have an extended conversation with you about what it is to be a follower of Christ and what that means, uh, how to become a part of a church family. So as the Spirit speaks to you, as you have opportunity, do not neglect uh, the voice of God's Spirit as he speaks. I want us this morning to open our Bibles to Mark's Gospel, chapter 10. And uh, I, I want to speak on the subject of seeing beyond our blindness, seeing beyond our blindness. Charles Haddon Spurgeon uh, arguably the greatest English orator of scripture, uh, said that the most miserable person in the world is a professing Christian who is half-hearted, who is half-committed. They're in the world enough that they are miserable in the presence of God. And they have enough of God to be miserable when they are in the world. I fear that in the West we have a great many Christians that are in that same boat, that are half-hearted, that are half-committed. They are interested in missing hell, but they do not want to miss out on the offerings of, of the world. And so as the result, they are half-hearted, half-committed, half-in, half-out. They are miserable. In thinking about that, I thought about uh, an analogy that I think captures it well from my childhood as I was being raised with my cousins. We would oftentimes, at, le at least two or three times a week we, or uh, a month, we would go to what was my, my grandparents' dairy farm. And they had a couple of tanks out there and they were spring fed, they were ice cold. And, and we would always look forward to going up there during the summer because we would, we would go swim in those tanks. But I had this one cousin, he just, man, he just ran and just jumped in headlong, you know, just get the shock over with. Well, I was always a little bit more uh, cautious, a little bit more circumspect. And so I would walk around that tank, you know, and I'd stick a toe in and, oh man, that's just so cold. You know, I'd walk around a little bit longer and I would, I would reach down and touch my hand in the water. And, oh man, this is going to be miserable. And finally, after a, a few minutes of doing that and carrying on, I would just go ahead and just dive in, get it over with as well. Now, I had another cousin, she would, she would uh, get up to the edge of the water and she would start walking in and she would stop when it was ankle deep. Then she would walk in further when it was knee deep and she'd walk further until it was waist deep. And it got to the point where, you know, she, she couldn't even talk, much less breathe. Now, which one of us three do you think was the most miserable at that point? It was the one that was half in and half out. I think Jesus understood well this, this misery of what it is to be half-hearted and to be half-committed. We know that in the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 6 and verse 24, he said to those disciples, he reminded them that no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and, and love the other or he will be devoted to one or despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon, that is God and wealth. Elsewhere, Jesus would say that, that you're either for me or you're against me. You're either all in or, or you're all out. 
When it comes to being my follower, being my disciple, there's no room for, for the half-hearted, for those that are half-committed. That if you're going to make a decision, there's going to have to be some, de- some determinations made in, in your life. You know, he never tried to manipulate people into following after him. Jesus was always very forthright. He, he, he wants any of his disciples to know the costs that, that are involved. That there is a cost of discipleship. You are to give up something. You have to abandon everything that you have ever known before. It's really a a death to self. I want you to know what you're getting yourself into once you put your hand to the plow. Don't enter into this lightly. You're going to have to make some choices and decisions, some determinations about, about your life if you're truly going to be my, my follower. Maybe some today have a sense that they are caught in this trap. Half in, half out. Maybe you have some blind spots to this. Maybe you've been led to believe, maybe you were raised in church and you were led to believe that to be a follower of Christ, to be a disciple means just acknowledging some things with your mouth, just professing that certain things are true about about the person of, of Jesus. And that once you believe these things, once you just give intellectual assent and say, I, you know, I believe those facts are, are true. But then somehow that is a license to go out and, and live as, as you desire to live without any guidance or instruction from, from the Word of God. Those are cultural Christians. Those who confess the right things, but, but their faith doesn't inform their life. The choices and decisions that they would make, the kind of person that they would desire to be. And it's very easy if you're raised in church to have, to have blind spots. To not realize that there is so much more that God would desire for us. And the possibilities that are before us, if we open our eyes to see. I think we have a good example of this. And this is a man that was literally blind, not just blind spots. But here in Mark's gospel in chapter 10, I want you to listen to this familiar story of Bartimaeus who receives his sight. He says that they came, then they came to Jericho and later as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a large crowd, a beggar who was blind named Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus was sitting by the road. And when he heard that it was Jesus, the Nazarene, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of man, son of David. Have mercy on me. Many were sternly telling him to be quiet, but he kept crying out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him here. So they called the man who was blind, saying to him, take courage, stand up. He's calling for you. And throwing off his cloak, probably one of his few possessions, And throwing off his cloak, he jumped up and came to Jesus and replying to him, Jesus said, what do you want me to do for you? 
The man who was blind said to him, Rabbi, I, I, I want to regain my sight. And Jesus said to him, go, your faith has made you well. And immediately he regained his sight and began following him down the road. I think the experience of Bartimaeus, that though literally blind, there are lessons for us because in our journey of faith, we can easily, we can become accustomed to things and just this going to church sort of thing. And we have no anticipation of where God would desire to take us in our lives. We become blind to the fullness of Christ and what God would desire for our lives and the people that he would desire that we become the people that would emerge forth from this work of transformation that he is accomplishing in our lives to lift the scales from our eyes. The first thing that I think is necessary, if we're going to borrow from the experience of Bartimaeus, if we're going to move from where we are, from just being a participant on the side of the road, if we are going to move forward into the likeness of Christ, the possibilities of what God would have in store for us, the potential and the possibilities that lie within us all. The first thing that is necessary for each one of us is that we capitalize upon our opportunities. You see, that's what Bartimaeus has before him here, this man who was making his living by begging on the side of the road. That's all people saw him as being was a beggar. That's all they saw him as ever being. But yet in this unique circumstance, he saw that this was an opportunity that must be capitalized upon. It says in verse 46, then they came to Jericho and later as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples in a large crowd, a beggar who was blind named Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the road. And when he heard that it was Jesus, the Nazarene, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. You see, Bartimaeus, even in his blindness, he saw an opportunity that might never arise again. And that's the uniqueness of an opportunity. That's why we call them opportune moments. It's really the intersection of two mutually exclusive events, two mutually exclusive things. A person's need intersects with the ability to respond. And when those two things intersect, what you have is an opportune moment. You have an opportunity to be seized, an opportunity that will never be again. That's why the Apostle Paul, recognizing the urgency of opportunities as they present themselves in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 10, verse 10. He said, so while we have the opportunity, speaking to the churches of Galatia, and he's talking about good works, which are vitally important because the Spirit leads us in doing good works and responding as, as the followers of Christ as we should, just as he prompts us in, in becoming followers of Jesus. And Paul here in Galatians is talking about the opportunity to, to do the right thing at, at the right moment. So while we have the opportunity, 
That's why I often stand before you as I begin a message and talk about being sensitive to the Spirit leading you in your life. Sensitive to what the Spirit is saying to you in this unique opportunity as the people of God are gathered together anticipating a word from, from the Lord in our own lives, in our own heart. That during the course of this service or as you walk away contemplating the events that have transpired in this service and as the Holy Spirit uses these to speak to your heart and mind, that as the Spirit says, listen, follow me. As the Spirit says in your heart today or this week, as the Holy Spirit says to you, listen, I know you don't know all the answers. Don't, don't wait until you have all the answers. I know you don't know all the implications. I know you hear Bobby saying that you're called to follow Jesus. That's all Jesus ever said, follow me. I know you don't know all the implications of that, and that's fine. You come to me as a newborn infant and I will grow you up. As you begin this journey of faith, I will grow you. I will mature you. But you've got to take that first baby step. You've got to follow the lead of my spirit and come to me. And I say that every week with a sense of urgency because I'm, I'm, I'm familiar with those that have delayed that decision to the point of never making that decision. Because over 35 years of ministry, there's a number that have come and talked to me about the Holy Spirit leading them and prompting them, but I just can't do it. And their clock ran out and I'm not trying to manipulate. I'm just saying there came a time when those individuals no longer spoke to me about such things and I fear that they experienced what the writer described in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 3 when God said, my spirit will not always strive with man. He's saying there comes a point where my spirit cannot eat. You say no long enough and often enough to my spirit in your heart, in your mind, then those things become desensitized to my spirit. No longer do you have that urging. No longer do you have, this is what I must do. You say no long enough and often enough. And you will come to a point where not even God's spirit can break through any longer through the hardness of your heart. How often do we let opportunities go by, not just in matters of salvation, but in matters of faith being expressed? Letting opportunities pass by that, uh, that, that represent where we could be representative of the presence of Christ, where we see something, where we could say something, or we could, we could do something, and we could be the presence of Christ in that, in that moment, the mouth of Christ, the hands of Christ. But we say, you know what? Oh, we're all guilty of this, aren't we? It's just not a good time. You done that? I'll shake my head for all of us. <laughs> I'm going to wait. I know there, I'll know there'll be another time and there'll be another opportunity. Only just to discover that this was the only opportunity that there was. See, we all have this vision. We want to do something big for God. And this is just, this is just classic American Western ego. Oh, I want to do some pastor. I want to do something big for God. You want to do something for the kingdom of God? Listen, it's at the side of the road. That's where, that's where Bartimaeus was. 
Jesus was never looking to the horizon. You know, he knew something big was out there on the horizon. The cross, he knew that 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 was looming. He knew that that was waiting for him. But you know what preoccupied his vision in his life? Things on the side of the road. The marginalized. The handicapped. The powerless. The disenfranchised. The woman with the hemorrhage, the leper, the blind, children. Things that no one else saw because their egos were looking far out to the horizon. You want to be a player in the kingdom of God, you've got to have a vision for things on the side of the road. And when those opportunities present themselves to us as the church, as the body of Christ, individually and collectively, we capitalize on those opportunities. That's when the church makes a difference in the world. There's a second thing that I think we can draw from the life of of Bartimaeus and his encounter with, with Jesus as He is discovering the possibilities of of his life. Not only did he capitalize on the opportunities, but what I love about Bartimaeus, and I'm sure he had heard negative voices all of his life because of his station in life. I'm sure he was used to people talking down to him and diminishing him. But one of the things you have to to appreciate, uh, notice there in verse 48, is the way that he was able to minimize the negative voices. And this is, a, this is of utmost importance for each and every one of us. When you're seeking to be a, a follower of Jesus Christ, when you're truly committed to being a countercultural believer and follower of Christ, as we are called to be, listen, people are going to pull you down. And you've got to learn how to minimize those, those, those negative voices if you're going to move forward in life. If you're going to continue to grow, if there's going to continue to be a growth and maturity in your life, listen, it's easy to get caught up in the proverbial crab trap. Where when you're trying to be something different, you're trying to be a follower of Christ. Listen, all you do is make other people feel bad. Other people feel guilty because they know what they are supposed to do. And even in the church, sadly, when you're trying to, when you're trying to be a countercultural believer, not trying to, trying to be half-hearted, not trying to be half in, half out, When you're trying to separate and grow, listen, there's always going to be those that are trying to pull you back down among the masses. In a world of least common denominators, they are always going to pull you down when you're trying to be a numerator in this world. Bartimaeus had to deal with it. Notice there in verse 48, many were sternly, that's a strong word. I mean, this guy's getting shouted down. Many were sternly telling him to be quiet. Now, I don't even know what their concern was at this point. This wasn't hurting them. But he was not going to be denied. Many were sternly telling him to be quiet, but he kept crying all the more. And Bartimaeus realized, if I'm not going to be my advocate, no one else is. No one else is going to to represent advocacy for me in the presence of Christ. I've got to do it myself. So he he refused to be shouted down by, by the negative voices. In fact, he kept crying out all the more, son of David, 
have mercy on me. See, Bartimaeus wasn't going to allow the critics. He wasn't going to allow the naysayer to deprive him his opportunity to have a unique opportunity and a unique encounter with, with Jesus. He was not going to allow the negative voices of the critics to deny him the opportunity of becoming what he could possibly become. See, even Moses recognized the importance of eliminating the voice of negativity, the voice of critics. You can go back to the book of of Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy chapter 20 and verse 8, Moses tells his generals, listen, I I want you to go to the front lines. I want you to identify those voices, identify those men that are weak hearted. Find out those that are weak in their mind, weak in their heart, and you send them back home. Lest they melt the hearts of their brothers. Moses recognized the influence of negativity. How negativity can can become pervasive. How the easiest thing to do is to be a critic on on the sidelines. One of my favorite stories by JFK, John F. Kennedy, was about the world's greatest baseball player. And this baseball player, the best baseball player ever played the game, had a thousand, can you imagine over his career, had a perfect 1,000 batting average. Unprecedented. Greatest baseball player in the world. Never missed a fly ball. Never missed a ground ball. Always threw to the right base. Always hit the right cutoff man. Never had an error in his career. The problem is you never could get him to put down his beer and hot dog and come out of the stands and play the game. (laughs) Listen, in your life, this is a key leadership principle as well. Listen, if, if you want to be a leader in life, if you want to be a leader among your peers, if you want to be popular, if you want everybody to like you, you can't really be a leader. But, it, but if your greater concern is everybody liking you and not, not being critical of you, of you, here's my counsel, sell ice cream. Everybody will love you if you sell ice cream. Nobody will be critical of you being an ice cream salesman. Everybody loves ice cream. But you've got to learn to minimize negative voices. That's what... That's what Bartimaeus had done. Because there's always going to be critical personalities. There are some people, I'm preaching to the choir. No, I'm preaching to you. We, we all know people that are just critical by nature. Their personalities are critical. They're wired that way. And what's sad about it is when you call it to their attention, they don't see themselves that way. But there are some people who are just wired to be critics just negative all the time. And we all have them in our life. Our life intersects with them. I mean, there's some you just see them and your legs start wilting and it's sucking the life out of you. You know, eh, eh. You know, it's, like a, you know it's like Harry Potter, like a death eater coming at you. you know. <laughs> and there's just, there's just some people like that. I came here 20 years ago. There was this lady, I guess I, guess I was a new set of eyes, a new set of ears, and this lady would make an appointment with me. All she'd do is complain. And... and 
it, it was just everything was negative about our church. And finally, after about three or four appointments in my first year, I mean, it was just wearing me out. I mean, it, and finally, the last appointment, I, I, I said to her, I said, listen, I said, not everything is negative. And you can make all the appointments you want, but from now on, when you come to see me, first thing you're going to start with, if you're coming to see me with a negative complaint about something that you don't like, I said, first of all, you're going to have to tell me two positive things about our church. You're going to tell me two positive things before you ever tell me a negative thing again. I don't think she talked to me for five years after that. But there are just some people, they have a bent towards the negative. That's the filter. They, you know, they, they, they just have a filter of stench that looks for smell. And the illustration I oftentimes use is that over the American Southwest, there are two, two birds that are prevalent that fly over the American Southwest. There's a vulture. And a vulture circles the desert floor of the American Southwest, and a vulture is looking for the rotting stench of carcass, of a carcass. That's all they're seeking out is the rotting stench of death. The other bird is the hummingbird. A hummingbird is flying around just looking for sweet fragrances, sweetness. Goodness. The interesting thing is, both of them find what they're looking for. Neither one of them is denied. If you're looking for stench and negative in your life, in the world, you can find it. If you're looking and if your bent is towards goodness, you can see it. You can identify it. Well, I, I, what, what is some practical information here? What are some practical things that, that we can do here to minimize critical personalities in your life? If you're serious about getting down the road with Christ Jesus, becoming what he would have you to become, instead of worrying about what the crowds would want you to be and, and trying to freeze you in time, then, then how do I minimize these, these critical voices? Well, here, here's, what's, uh, here's what's important. It's not whether or not you're going to be criticized. If, if you're serious about being a leader among your peers, if you're serious about being a leader in your faith, it's not whether or not you're going to be criticized. You are going to be criticized. The big question is who? Who's criticizing? Is it someone that has a vested interest in you? Is it someone that is knowledgeable? Is it someone that, that you respect? Now, if, if those things are true, if they're vested, I mean, are, are they just consumers? There's some people that are just consumers. They're, they're renters. They really, don't, they really aren't owners. They don't, they don't have a vested interest. But when someone is critical, you, you, you have to ask, okay, is this, is this a is this a person who has a vested interest in me and our organization and our business, our goal, objective, missions, whatever? Is this someone who has, has a vested interest? Is this someone who is knowledgeable? Is it someone I, I respect? Dabo Swinney from Clemson University said it well when he was receiving some criticism this past year. He made it real clear. He said, I first have to value your opinion of, he said, I first have to value your opinion before I could ever be offended by your opinion of me. 
It's not a bad take on life. But, but if it's someone that, that you respect, that is knowledgeable, that has a vested interest in you, listen. If so, listen. First thing, listen. There's no harm in listening. In fact, there, there may be some things that, that you can take away from that for your, for your personal growth. Second thing, if they are vested, if they are knowledgeable, if you, if you respect them and you highly value their, their opinion, then, then assume, second thing is, I, I would assume that their intentions are good. Their intentions are good, constructive. Their intentions are not, are not negative in, in nature. Third, I would say, avoid excuses if what they are saying to you, what you are maybe perceiving is critical, if what they are saying is, to you is true, learn from it. Just grow, embrace it. Don't deny it. Just, just own it. Grow in, in the experience. Another thing I would say is don't make it personal. This is something I communicate often to our student athletes at Tech and football. Listen, they're not being critical, they're just coaching. Your coach has a vested interest. I mean, their paycheck's dependent upon it, but they have a vested interest in your development, in your growth as an individual, as a person, as a man. Yes, as an athlete. And a coach that is truly vested in you, that, that has your best interest at heart, listen, they're going to coach you hard. They're going to coach you passionately. They're going to coach you urgently. Don't make it personal. It's not critical. It's correction. It's coaching. And those of you that are mature in your, in, as a person, if you're mature, then you can take coaching. You can take hard coaching. You want to be coached. Listen, as a player in your room, in your position room, the worst thing that can possibly happen to you is your coach being indifferent to you. In your position room, in your workplace, the worst thing that can happen to you is your coach being indifferent to you, where you're being ignored, where all attention is being given to other players. Don't make it into something that's personal. Learn from it. Grow in it. Then I have to ask myself, what can be applied here? What can I take from this and, and apply it to my life and and grow. It might even, and here's a good, here's a good question is, is what action steps do you think I ought to take? Now then here's the flip side of that. That's a positive side of that, of someone that you know has a vested interest in your life, that is knowledgeable, that an opinion that you respect. Now here's the opposite of that. What if it's someone that just has their own agenda? Someone that is more concerned about their own personal preferences, has really no interest in you. Really no overall interest in organizational goals or mission. What if it's just, what if it's just somebody that, that wants their own way? Well, the first thing that is necessary in, in those circumstances, I would say, the first thing I would do is those just constant critics like that, is just avoid their company. Many people have a practice of just surrounding themselves with negative people and it just demoralizes you. You need to learn, sometimes no is a tough word to learn. 
Who's going to get in your circle of influence? Sometimes some personalities just have to be avoided. Not everyone is necessary. There are some people that will just drag you down and keep you down that are destructive, toxic personalities. So who, who gets inside your head? Sometimes it's just better to avoid toxic personalities. Second thing I would say is don't give them time and space inside your psyches, inside your, inside your head. Oftentimes tell our young coaches, I don't have to tell old coaches because they aren't, they aren't really into social media that much, but I tell young coaches, stay off, stay off the message boards. You know, you, stay, you get on these message boards, you know, and there's nothing, nothing easier than being a great coach from the stands. You know, just avoid the message boards. Stay off the message boards. Don't let that stuff get inside your head. Because it just sucks the way the time and the energy that is necessary to be poured into those others, those young men's lives that you're trying to build. Listen, don't give people free rent space inside your head. Because all that does is just take away the time and the energy that could be used to go, that could be used to go forward into the likeness and the becoming of Christ in your life, unlocking the possibilities. Because if you don't learn to eliminate the critics and the negative voices inside your head and you continue to let them dominate your time and steal away your energy, then the possibilities of what you could be never be realized. I read some time ago that Michelangelo in his sculpting career, just in his sculpting, that he had 44 commissioned works and he completed only 14 of them. Pieta, David in Florence Square, Moses, some of the more popular. But what I find no less spellbinding and interesting is not just those 14 he completed, but the 30 that were incomplete that were uncompleted. And I'm sure you've seen some of those images before. It's just a, and these are on display as well in museums in Italy. Uh, it's just a big block of square and it may, have a, it may have a wrist and an elbow emerging out of that block of stone. Or it may be a knee that's, that's emerging from that block of stone, a foot and, and an ankle wrist and, and a hand, a head and, and the shoulders that, that are just emerging from this block of stone while the rest of the body is still just perfectly encased. It, you look at those and you wonder, I wonder, I wonder what those would have looked like if Michelangelo had finished his work, finished his task. I wonder what those images would look like, those characters would look like now. You see those images and we, and we have to ask the question, could that be no less true of us? That there is so much more of each one of us that is to be revealed, to be realized, to be made known, to be brought out. But we are 
frozen and we are encased, not by stone, but by worries, fears, anxieties, critics. When there is so much more to be seen in your life. It can become reality. And it happens when you capitalize like Bartimaeus, when you capitalize on your opportunities, when you minimize the negative voices that seek to keep you down. And when you exercise the faith that's available, that's I don't know anything about the quality of Bartimaeus faith. I just know he acted. Jesus said, your faith has made you well. And immediately he regained his sight and began following him down down the road. Pretty compelling argument that faith, I know faith is a noun, but I could make a pretty good argument that it's an action word. It affirms the word of God. Faith believes in, in the word of God. It acts upon the word of God. If you just act upon it, we never know where it might lead. What we might see if we just respond in faith. Father, how grateful we are that your grace and mercy does not freeze us in time but it sets us free to explore new and experience new opportunities. To continue in this lifelong journey of becoming the fullness of Christ. And so Father, I pray that we would truly be a people of faith or that would capitalize on our opportunities, that we would diligently eliminate those negative voices that would seek to keep us hostage on the side of the road that we might activate the faith that you have entrusted to us, that we might continue each day just acting out our faith, knowing that through our acting, we are becoming. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.